If you like scary stories, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast. <laughs> Sit back and relax. Keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times and enjoy the ride. The Loft My wife and I recently bought a building in one of the older sections of a city. The first floor of the building was made for a commercial business. We had already come to an agreement to lease it to a company that sold pet supplies. The second and third floors were a nice residential loft apartment. Our plan was to live in the loft apartment. It was in good condition, it didn't need much in the way of work. We had most of our big items already moved in, but still had a lot of other things that needed to be packed and loaded. We slept at the loft on Friday night and went back to our house on Saturday. We were both going to bring a load of items to the loft and then spend the day and night mopping, cleaning bathrooms, and doing some minor painting. We loaded my wife's car up first. She was going to stop at her parents' house on the way to the loft to pick up a few items they were giving us. I had just began loading up my car when she left, so it was clear that she was going to get to the loft well before I would. When I arrived at the building, I grabbed a couple of boxes and carried them upstairs to the loft. As I opened the door to the second floor and set the boxes down, I could hear my wife walking around on the third floor above me. I called out to her to let her know I was there. She answered back, although her voice was muffled and I couldn't make out precisely what she said. I finished unloading my vehicle and began sweeping the second floor, all the while I could still hear my wife walking around on the floor above me. Just as I finished sweeping, I could hear my wife call down to me. Where are you? I'm right down here, you need any help? She didn't reply. I casually walked up to the third floor to see if she needed anything before I went back down to begin mopping the second floor. The third floor mostly consisted of a long corridor that ended at a master bedroom with an attached bathroom. The only other room upstairs was a small guest bedroom that was about halfway down the corridor. I could hear my wife moving things around in the master bedroom, so I walked down the hallway and entered the room. I was a little surprised by what I saw. All of the drawers to the dresser were open, and the clothes that I saw her fold and put in them just the previous night were thrown about the room. What happened up here? My wife wasn't in the bedroom. I heard a noise in the bathroom. The door to the bathroom was open and the light was on, so I stepped inside while asking again, What's with all the clothes on the floor? The moment I finished my sentence, I realized she wasn't in the bathroom. This was strange because I just heard her moving around in there. I thought maybe my ears were playing tricks on me. Maybe she was in the guest bedroom and 
Perhaps that's where I heard the movement from. I walked back down the corridor to the guest bedroom and stepped in. The sheets and comforter had been stripped off the bed and were lying on the floor. We had just made up the bed in there the night before, so I was confused. On top of that, my wife was not in the guest bedroom either. I called out again. Sweetie, where are you? I walked down the hall to the stairs and began walking back down to the second floor. Halfway down, I heard my wife's voice again. Come back. I have something for you. Her voice was coming from upstairs, and it sounded deeper than usual. There was a hoarseness to it as though she had a scratchy throat. As I turned to head back upstairs, my cell phone rang. I answered it. It was my wife. Hi, honey. Sorry I'm not there yet. I'm still over at my parents' house. The fire. I live in a little house in the deep woods. My nearest neighbor is five miles away. There is an old, worn-down farmhouse across the street sitting on 50 acres of neglected fields. The house has been vacant since I've been here, which is a little over 20 years now. That is, it was vacant. Earlier this summer, several women moved into the house. The house was in rough shape when they bought it, but they had been hammering away at it and actually got it looking quite nice in a short amount of time. I'm not entirely sure how many women live there, at least half a dozen, but it might be more. They all appear to be in their late 30s or early 40s and every one of them has long, white blonde hair. I never talk to any of them, but have waved to a couple of them when we both happen to be in our yards at the same time. From a distance, they seemed nice enough. One evening, just as the sun was setting, I was sitting at my kitchen table drinking a hot cup of coffee and reading a newspaper when I heard a frantic knock at my front door. I hurried to the door and opened it to find one of my female neighbors standing there with an extremely worried look on her pale face. I, I think I set my field on fire. Her icy blue eyes were filled with anxiety and I could tell that she was on the verge of a total freakout. I slipped on my boots and had a hard time keeping up with her as she darted through my yard and up their driveway like a gazelle. As I neared the top of their drive, I could see black smoke rising into the purple sky. It was a lot of smoke, but didn't seem widespread, so I was hopeful that I could help contain it before it blazed out of control. I dashed around the back of their house and was finally able to get my eyes on the field. I was staring at a charred circle with a ring of flames around the edges. I counted ten women standing around the edge of the circle. 
They were all wearing black robes and their whitish locks were flowing in the gentle breeze. The first unusual thing I noticed was that none of the women were panicked. They were all standing stoically with their arms raised above their heads. Then I noticed that the fire wasn't spreading at all. It was being contained by a thick circle of heavy, round stones. Then I noticed something odd in the middle of the circle of fire. It was a gigantic, rustic piece of wood. It was thick, at least eight feet tall and four feet wide. All of the women encircling the flames began to chant in methodical unison. It was only then that my mind finally caught up with reality and I realized something was not right. I startled when I felt a hand on my shoulder. I turned to see the woman who only moments ago was standing at my door in an agitated near hysterical state, but now she was calm. She gazed at me stone-faced, her icy blue eyes cold and unfeeling. I didn't even realize she was holding a sledgehammer until she was in the act of swinging it. By the time my brain registered the action, it was too late for me to react. The sledgehammer clocked me in the face and knocked me out cold. Now here I am, stripped naked and tied to this old rustic wooden stake as the group of mysterious women stack a mound of brush and firewood around my legs. It looks like I'm about to be a human sacrifice of some kind. This is probably going to hurt. If you like what you're hearing, please consider contributing. Any amount helps. Recurring monthly contributions are best of all. Just go to maniacontheloose.com slash support. That's maniacontheloose.com slash support. The Cafe I was on a road trip from Iowa to Tennessee. I wasn't in a hurry and hate the interstate, so I decided to take the back roads the entire way to enjoy some of the sights and sounds. I stopped at a historic site called Cahokia Mounds, which is a pre-Columbian Native American city known to be the largest archaeological site north of Mexico. I visited the Garden of Gods, which is a hiking spot that is part of the Shawnee National Forest that is known for its breathtaking views. I stayed overnight in a little town called Metropolis that is a shrine to all things Superman. Everything was going great until I drove through a sleepy old town in Kentucky. I drove through the historic district of the town, or should I say, what was once the historic district of the town. 
A few old buildings were still standing, but were dominated by vacant lots where neighboring buildings once stood. The buildings that were still upright were in rough shape. Some had boarded up windows. Others were in extreme disrepair. It was a sad remnant of what was once a bustling town in the early 1900s, according to a historical marker in the center of the town. Now it's just a few years away from being a total ghost town. There was something creepy about the emptiness and the stillness of the town. The only sign of life I saw was in the form of a few vehicles parked outside of a small diner that was simply called the cafe. I was hungry, so I decided to give the cafe some business. I parked and entered the time-worn building. It was a very small, old-time diner with a long counter that housed round spinning stools. There was a grill behind the counter and there were four booths set snugly together against the back wall. The cafe was filled with steam from the food sizzling on the grill. I couldn't see what was being cooked, but the overwhelming scent was that of onions. There was a jukebox on the side wall playing an old country tune, which emphasized the cozy feel of the place, but right away, I could tell something was off. Under the sound of sizzling food and the music was an eerie silence that was out of place because there were patrons in the establishment. I noticed a couple sitting at one of the booths and a solo man sitting stiffly at the counter. It seemed as though there should have been a little bit of chatter, either from the customers or the employees. And that was another strange thing. I didn't see any employees. No server and no cook, even though there was food on the grill. I opted to seat myself at one of the booths. That's when I noticed that the couple in the nearby booth were sitting unusually still. Mannequin-like. And then out of the blue, the man in the booth fell forward, his head banging against the table with a thud. The woman sitting across from him didn't react at all. Something was seriously wrong. I got up to check on the couple and immediately noticed a pool of blood forming on the table under the man's face. At first I thought maybe he cut himself when he fell forward, but then I gazed at the woman across from him and it all made sense. Her throat had been slit and she was propped up against the back of the seat. I screamed and ran to the man who was sitting at the counter. I grabbed his shoulder and was about to tell him to call the police, but the weight I put on him caused him to lurch forward and his head rolled off of his shoulders and onto the counter. Someone had decapitated him. That's when I noticed the body behind the counter. It was clearly the cook dressed in white and wearing an apron. He was lying on his stomach. I rushed behind the counter to see if he was still alive, but when I rolled him over, I saw that he had been stabbed in the chest multiple times. He was dead, but blood was still oozing from his wounds and he was still warm. Very warm. He couldn't have been dead for more than a few minutes. I startled when I heard the loud metallic clang coming from a small room near the counter. It sounded as though someone knocked something over. That's when it dawned on me that the killer was still there. My fight or flight instinct chose flight, 
and I hopped over the counter. I could hear more items falling from the room. My impression was that the killer was moving and coming out of that room. They were coming for me. As I reached the door, I could hear footsteps racing toward me from across the cafe. I didn't look back. I bolted from the diner and rushed to my car. It wasn't until I was inside my vehicle with the doors locked that I dared to glance back at the cafe. I expected the killer to be rushing at me, but they weren't. I can only assume that I had enough of a lead on them that they decided not to bother giving further chase. I floored it out of the cafe parking lot. After I was a couple miles away, I called the police. The Man with Amnesia I'm a psychiatrist and I practice in the state of Texas. I have had quite a variety of patients over the years, but by far my most unnerving patient was the man with amnesia. I had a friend named Davis who ran a local mission. He stopped by to tell me of a young man in his thirties who recently arrived at the mission. The man was in great shape and appeared educated and intelligent but was suffering from a major case of amnesia. Apparently, Davis suggesting to take the man to a hospital or notifying the police unhinged the man. He wanted nothing to do with such things. This was concerning. I conveyed my trepidation about this fact to Davis and he concurred but he found the knowledge this man had about certain subjects to be quite compelling. The man with amnesia had considerable expertise on the topic of the American Civil War to the point where he came across as a professor. On top of that, he possessed a familiarity with all things horses and a basic medical understanding. Davis was fascinated with the case of the man with amnesia, but with the inability to seek assistance from medical doctors or the police, he wasn't sure where to turn, and that led him to me. I agreed to see the man with amnesia to assess his situation and determine whether or not I could be of some assistance. When the man entered my office, I was struck by his cold, hard gaze. Davis explained briefly about your case. I'm going to try to help you. Do you remember your name? The man shook his head. What should I call you? The man pondered my question for a moment and then responded. His voice had a smooth, soothing feel to it, and he held a calm confidence within. Call me Ebenezer, Ichabod, or Bartholomew. Your choice. That's an unusual selection of names. Three colorful names that are rarely used nowadays. 
If you're leaving it up to me, I choose Ebenezer. Now tell me, Ebenezer, what can you remember? Everything from the past week, that's all. Davis mentioned you remember certain things pertaining to the past. The Civil War, for example. And that you are familiar with horses, and that you may possess medical knowledge. Ebenezer snickered. Davis is a good man. He's been helping me a lot, and I must admit that it has been enjoyable to talk to him. He seems fascinated with me, which I find amusing. Why do you find this amusing? It's as if he doesn't expect me to have any source of intelligence, and when he finds something within me that he considers as such, he gets excited. Giddy, even. Like a kid. So, I find that to be amusing. Is Davis correct about his findings? Yes, it's true. I know about these things, but I didn't realize it until the subject was brought up. Davis was trying to get me to remember my name. In doing so, he mentioned that his middle name was Lee. He said all the men in his family, as far back as he could remember, had the middle name of Lee, which was derived from General Robert E. Lee. That reminded me of the Civil War, and I discovered I had extensive knowledge pertaining to that event. So, obviously, you hold an interest in the Civil War. Particularly the Battle of Gettysburg. I excel in that area. I can tell you anything about it that you want to know. I feel not only like it's something I've studied, but I feel like I've been immersed in it somehow. Almost like... I wasn't sure if his hesitation was a memory issue, or if he was uncomfortable sharing, so I prodded him. Almost like what? It's as if I were there. I know so much about it. I can actually see the battlefields. Not like you see from pictures, but I can see them from the point of view of standing on them. I feel I've stood on that ground. I've run on it. I've laid on it. I could sense a frustration boiling within Ebenezer with the fact that he was aware of certain things, but wasn't sure how. This is progress. You are beginning to discover pieces of your memory. Now it's just a matter of putting them back together like a puzzle. Let's move on to another subject and see if we can find a connection. Davis mentioned that you have a knowledge of horses. Yes. Davis was running through a list of things trying to find something that would trigger a memory. He was bringing up animals. And when he started talking about horses, something just clicked. Kind of like a switch being flicked on. I know horses. I know them well. How so? I know I can ride. I'm a great rider. I enjoy it. It's second nature to me. I don't think I'm a horse farrier, but I can shoe a horse. 
I know how to care for these animals. I know everything about them. What about the medical understanding Davis spoke of? Ah, this one is hard to explain. Davis was telling me about his family. He mentioned that his father had been a pathologist. For some reason, that struck a chord with me. I feel like if you put a cadaver in front of me, that I could perform an autopsy. Do you think you work in the medical field? I don't. With the Civil War, I know deep down I've studied it. Where, I don't know. When, I don't know. But I can feel it. It's something I've learned. And with the horses, I know I have experience with them. A lot of experience with them. But when it comes to the medical stuff, it's... different. I don't feel like I've studied it. I can't get fancy with medical lingo. It's just a feeling I have, a confidence in the subject. Can you tell me why it is that you are unwilling to go to the hospital or talk to the police? This is when the calm demeanor of Ebenezer was stripped away and he became panicked and paranoid as he jumped from his chair. No, no police, no hospitals. Do you hear me? No. I tried to calm him down by pleading with him to take a seat and relax. He was having none of it. He was pacing about the room. His eyes were enraged, and his hands were clenched into tight fists. I don't need to take a seat. I don't need to relax. I need to find out who I am. With that, he bolted out of the room. I wasn't sure if I would ever see him again, but a couple days later, there was a knock on my door. It was him. He was apologetic and seemed genuinely embarrassed by his behavior at the previous session. It didn't take much coercing to get him to sit down, and it was he who elected to start the conversation. I keep having a dream. No, a nightmare. I wake up in cold sweats and I'm afraid. Can you tell me about the nightmare? I was being chased by a man. I don't know who. Do you know why he is chasing you? He wants to kill me. Why? I don't know. What do you do? I run. I look back over my shoulder once in a while. He's always closer every time I look. There's something in his hand. It's glistening in the light. What is it? What is in his hand? A knife. He's going to kill me. He's going to cut me up. He's going to butcher me. Relax. Take a breath. I don't want you to overload your mind. Ebenezer took several deep breaths and was able to calm himself quickly. Did you dream about anything else? Ebenezer pondered my question for a long while before answering. I dreamt of the Pickett's Charge battlefield in Gettysburg. I was riding my horse across the battlefield.
Do you remember anything else? A barn, a red barn, trees in the distance, a line of trees where the Confederate soldiers emerged. I can see it. What else? Look around you, not at the battlefield, but directly around you. Horses, other horses. There are other people on horseback with me. What do they look like? What are they wearing? Well, they look normal. Jeans, t-shirt, comfortable clothing. They're looking around, admiring the sacred ground they are on. They're talking to each other. They're talking to me. They're asking me questions. What are they asking you? They're asking me about the area, the battle. Why are they asking you these questions? Why you? Because they know that I'm knowledgeable about this place. How could they know that? Because I'm... I'm a guide! Ebenezer's eyes widened and his jaw dropped. He couldn't believe that he just remembered something significant. I wanted to keep things going, so I immediately followed up with some questions. What kind of guide, Ebenezer? A trail guide. A horse trail guide. He paused for a moment as his mind became flooded with thought. He stood up, beaming. It's coming back to me. I was born in Gettysburg. I was born and raised there. That's how I know so much about the Civil War and the battles at Gettysburg. I grew up with it. It was around me my whole life. I used to work as a horse guide. That's why I know so much about horses. I worked in stables. I did everything. I would take tourists out to the battlegrounds on horseback. I would show them where the battles took place. What time frame in your life are we talking about, Ebenezer? Oh, I was just a kid. I started working for the stables when I was only 14. I learned everything I could. About the history of our town, about horses, everything. I loved it there. I loved it. Why are you so far away from the town that you love so much? He was still smiling and happy as he shrugged and answered me. I had to get away for some reason. Why? All at once, the smile and happiness drained from his body. His eyes widened and a cold, blank expression covered his face as though he realized something. I have to go. He sprinted out of the office before I could say another word. It was three nights later when I encountered Ebenezer again. I had already sent my secretary home for the night. When I opened my office door to step out, Ebenezer was there holding a sadistic grin. He physically moved me back into my office. You aren't going anywhere, Doc. I was cross with his tyrannical attitude. What's the meaning of this? Who else did you speak to about me? Speak to about you? No one. Now please, 
No one? Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Ebenezer grabbed me by the shirt and roughly pushed me down into my chair. Do you know what I did just before I came to your office? I took in a deep breath and gulped. I'm afraid to ask. I killed Davis. Now it was obvious as to why he paid me a visit. And now you're going to kill me. You are clever, aren't you? Do you mind if I inquire as to why? The same reason I killed Davis. You both know too much about me. I would disagree with that. I don't know much about you at all. You know enough. Do you remember the dream I was having? The one where I was being chased by someone with a knife who I knew was going to kill me? I do. It was an odd dream. Odd because I was dreaming from my victim's perspective. I was feeling what they felt. It was quite exhilarating, actually. Your victim's perspective? That's right, doctor. I'm a serial killer. I tried to keep a stoic expression, but the fear I was feeling crept over my face and Ebenezer recognized it. You are right to be afraid. My parents held a similar expression just before I killed them. That's when it all started. My parents didn't want me to continue to be a Civil War trail guide. But I loved doing it. There was nothing else I wanted to do. But did that matter to them? They were constantly nagging me to quit. They wanted me to go off to college and become a doctor like my father. But I wanted no part of it. So I killed them. And that was when I discovered the thrill of the kill. Ebenezer began pacing as he continued. Even though I loved my time as a Gettysburg trail guide, I now had a new desire, and I decided it was best that I move far away from there. So I moved to the West Coast and perfected my craft. I've killed hundreds. I have it down to a wonderful science. I move all the time, all over the country, Canada and Mexico a few times, too. I kill wherever I am. And I'm always gone before anyone can suspect a thing. The insanity in his eyes grew and his sadistic smirk had grown into a snarl as he spoke. I had my last victim all picked out. I was following her waiting for the perfect time to pounce. I ducked down an alley so I could watch her from the darkness. And you want to hear something really funny? I slipped. <laughs> there was something slippery on the ground, and I slid on it and fell hard. I banged my head on a dumpster and lost my memory. Can you believe that? Talk about a freak accident. 
And you just happened to wander into the mission and met Davis. Yes, it was unlucky for him, and unlucky for you. You are both fine people. Helping a stranger like me was an admirable thing for you to do. But it just happened to be the wrong stranger. I felt like the time had come for me to start begging for my life. Uh, listen, Ebenezer, just, just leave. I won't tell anyone. You are correct, Doctor. You won't tell anyone. I never leave my tracks uncovered. You know too much. Just like Davis did. With that, Ebenezer withdrew an intimidating knife from under his jacket and sneered as he advanced toward me with malicious intent. For as seasoned as a serial killer as he just boasted of being, I was surprised that he didn't even consider the fact that I might be armed. I always kept a thirty-eight revolver in my desk drawer. I withdrew it and pulled the trigger. His malevolent expression turned to shock as the first bullet entered his chest. I let forth with two more blasts and the man with amnesia fell in a lifeless heap to the floor. You are next. My name is Tina. I work in a small hotel in the middle of nowhere, and that's not an exaggeration. The location was chosen because it is immediately off of the interstate. The exit from the interstate is the only exit for 20 miles either way. There's a gas station near the exit ramp. A quarter of a mile behind the gas station is the hotel. There are no other businesses in the area. Our hotel is quite small. It has two floors, 20 rooms on the first floor and 20 rooms on the second floor. People would likely be surprised if they realized that we sold out most nights, but it's true. It's a long stretch of lonely interstate with steady traffic. A lot of our customers are people we refer to as heavy lids. These are the people who are close to falling asleep at the wheel, so they stop and get a room. We get several truckers every night. These are the guys who don't have a sleeper in their cab or just want to stretch out in a real bed. Our hotel is also very popular for rendezvous, if you know what I mean. The middle of nowhere is a nice place to meet if you're having an affair. We also get a large number of very young couples who likely don't have a private location to do the deed and are tired of doing it in a cramped car. The night in question was an unusually slow night. This was due to a blizzard. The snowflakes were thick and heavy. I couldn't even make out the structure of the gas station through the blanket of snow. I could vaguely see their lights like a beacon in the night. It was the kind of night I would expect the hotel to sell out quickly, but the blizzard was a beast. Anybody with half a brain had packed it in for the night well before they traveled this far. 
Those who dared to press their luck likely slid off the road or at best voluntarily pulled to the side to wait it out. On this night, only five of our rooms were being used. All five of the customers were taking shelter from the snowstorm. They managed to get off the interstate before the ramp became so caked with snow that it was impassable. The snow was supposed to stop around 6 a.m. The ramp in the interstate would be cleared enough to use by 10 a.m. Until then, nobody was going anywhere. It was currently 2 o'clock a.m. The customers were all in their room and the lobby was eerily quiet save for the subtle hissing of the gas fireplace from across the lobby. I was sitting at the lobby desk reading a suspense novel and startled when I heard a loud notification beep coming from the hotel computer in the back office. I stepped into the darkened room. The only light was the glow of the computer monitor. There was ample illumination to guide me. I sat down at the computer and noticed that there was a new email in the hotel inbox. This was highly unusual for this time of night. The majority of hotel emails came in between 8am and 5pm. After midnight, it was almost unheard of. I noticed that the email had no subject and no sender information. I clicked on it. The email consisted of just three words. You. Are. Next. A shiver ran down my spine. I took mild comfort in the fact that it was sent to the hotel in general, and not me specifically, but still, it was creepy. I deleted it and stepped out into the lobby. I looked out the front window of the hotel. The gas station lights in the distance were the only signs of life I saw. I felt sorry for whoever was working the gas station on such a night. At least I had a cozier location to be stuck in. I pulled a lobby chair and ottoman close to the fireplace and sat down. I kicked off my shoes and threw my feet up as I leaned back and lost myself in my suspense novel. It was about 30 minutes later when I heard another loud ping of the email notification echoing in the gloomy hotel office. I stared at the lobby desk for a few minutes. I wasn't anxious to see what this one said. I would have preferred to ignore it, but it was my job to answer the phones and emails when they came in at night, so I got up and made my way back to the hotel office. I entered the office and flicked on the light, hoping the extra lighting would provide some comfort. And it did, until I stepped in front of the computer and looked at the new email. Unlike the last one, this one did have a subject line. I could feel my blood run cold when I read it. Tina. I was frightened to open it, but I slowly moved the mouse cursor over the email, clicked it, and read the message. You are next. Two seconds after I read the cryptic message, the hotel fell dark. There was a medley of machine beeps as they shut off the very second the power went out. This wasn't the first time I had been in the hotel when we lost power. 
It had happened twice before, once during a thunderstorm and once during heavy winds. Both times a backup generator kicked on, allowing the computers to be functional and providing minimal lighting in the halls and lobby. On this occasion, the backup generator did not come on. The hotel was pitch black. I had to feel my way out of the office. Once I reached the lobby desk, the glow of the gas-logged fireplace proved enough light for me to see. I stepped into the lobby and crinkled my brow in confusion as I looked out the front door of the hotel. The gas station lights were still on. This didn't make sense. I knew for a fact that the gas station and the hotel were on the same power grid, and the gas station did not have a backup generator. If our lights were out, theirs should have been out too. Why were they still on? This meant that the power outage was isolated to just the hotel, as if someone had cut the power. You are next. The email message kept flooding my mind. Someone sent me that message. They knew my name. Was it someone I knew or just someone who saw my name tag? Regardless, they knew where I was. Could they have cut the power? Could they be coming for me? Am I next? Next? What did that mean? Next for what? I was scared and decided to call the power company to alert them to our situation. And then I was going to call the hotel manager and wake them up to let them know what was happening, but also just to hear someone else's voice. The hotel's main switchboard would not be functional without electricity. Fortunately, my cell phone was in my purse in the office. But then I remembered I forgot my purse in the car. I was alerted to this fact earlier in the night when I went to pull a stick of gum from my purse under the lobby desk and grabbed nothing but air. Fortunately, there was a landline phone in the office that didn't require electricity. I could call out on that. With the assistance of the glimmer from the fireplace, I grabbed a book of matches from the lobby desk and lit a match so that I could make my way through the office to the phone. I picked it up and to my dismay there was no dial tone. This didn't make sense. The landline should be working. Why would it be dead? Did someone cut the phone line? I hurried out of the dark office to the lobby and stared out the hotel window at the gas station lights as I went over my options, of which there weren't many. I couldn't call anyone. My car wouldn't make it out of the parking lot if I attempted to drive somewhere. I certainly couldn't walk any distance in this weather. I was just going to have to wait it out. Alone. But I wasn't alone. As I turned from the hotel door, I caught a glimpse of a dark figure standing in the corner of the lobby not far from the fireplace. They were hovering in the shadows, watching me. When they realized that I had spotted them, they took a step forward. They were still concealed by the shadows to the point where I couldn't make out any details, but they were there. And then they spoke in a whisper. You are next. I ran out of the lobby into the darkness of one of the hotel corridors. There were five customers in the hotel with me. 
I had placed them all in rooms in the same hallway to make maid service more convenient the following morning. I screamed as I ran down the hallway, Help me! Help me! I reached one of the rooms where I knew a couple was staying and pounded on the door. I was shocked when the door creaked open upon me hitting it. Hello? I still had the book of matches from the lobby desk. I lit one, and it lit the room enough for me to see the blood-drenched walls and the mangled body of the couple who had been hacked to pieces. I screamed and dashed out of the room. I moved to the next room. The door was open as well. I hurried in and lit my match only to be greeted by a decapitated head that was placed on top of the mini-fridge. I didn't even need to enter the next two rooms as the blood from the massacre within it pooled out into the corridor. I entered the fifth room that housed a live body earlier in the night. Now it only housed a dead body. The words, you are next, were scrawled in blood on the wall. I darted from the room. At the far end of the corridor was an exit door to the parking lot. If I could make it to that door, perhaps I could get outside and drudge my way through the blizzard to the gas station for help. It was my only chance. As I ran down the corridor, I could hear a sinister hiss coming from the other end of the hall. You are next. They were chasing me. I could hear the footsteps closing in on me as they continued to hiss out. You are next. I kicked myself into a gear I didn't realize I had and tore down the hallway and finally reached the glass exit door. I thrust it open, but the imposing snowbank on the other side of the door would only allow it to open a few inches. I pushed and shoved with all my might, but the door wouldn't budge. The last words I heard before I felt the knife sink into my back were, You. Are. Next. If you like scary stories, and you want to support the show, buy some of my books. I have a whole slew of them, and most of them are just 99 cents. Go to ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash books. Again, this is a great way to support the show. That's ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash books. If you like the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories podcast, please subscribe on whatever platform you listen on. Feel free to leave a nice review, too, if you like. And don't be shy about letting other people know about the show. All of these things help us out a ton, and we appreciate it very much. Twins. My name is Peter. I have an identical twin brother named Victor. Me and Victor may look exactly alike, but that's where our similarities end. Victor is evil. The first time I witnessed his malevolence was when we were five. We were on the porch with our parents. They had invited the neighbors over. They had a baby who was only a few months old. 
The baby was in a stroller. One had to walk up eight stairs to reach the porch. The neighbors made the mistake of leaving the baby in the stroller too close to the stairs. Victor didn't like the baby. When my parents and the couple were engrossed in conversation, Victor saw his opportunity and gently pushed the stroller with the baby down the stairs. The baby survived, but had a nasty gash over one of his eyes that would likely leave a permanent scar. My parents blamed me for the accident. I guess I expected Victor to confess and get me off the hook, but instead he grinned at me as my mother slapped my face. This was a reoccurring theme throughout my life. Evil Victor would do something bad. Innocent Peter would get blamed. Everyone thought I was the bad one. For the longest time, I kept Victor's nefarious acts a secret. I always hoped guilt would one day overtake him and divulge the ugly truth and shed light on my innocence. But alas, Victor knew not what guilt was. I tried to explain it to him, but it simply didn't resonate. He'd grow aggravated with me trying to describe what guilt felt like, and he'd yell at me and insist that if I did not shut up, he'd do something bad and blame it on me. It was when we were ten that I accepted the fact that he never intended on coming forward as I hoped he would. We were on the playground at school during recess when Victor pulled out a pocket knife and cut a little girl's arm because she wouldn't kiss him. When the teachers tried to punish me for my brother's dastardly deed, I finally spoke up for myself. Victor did it. It was Victor. It has always been Victor. It felt good to get that off my chest, but they didn't believe me. It was as though they couldn't even bring themselves to consider that Victor might be the guilty party. When we were 13, Victor and I asked my mother for a video game console for Christmas. She said that we didn't deserve it and refused. I understood. Victor had done so many bad things over the years, she was right. We didn't deserve it. But Victor didn't understand. He grew angry and pushed the Christmas tree over onto my mother, and then proceeded to kick her in the ribs again and again. When my father got home from work, he beat the hell out of me. I was forced to see a psychiatrist who committed me to a psychiatric hospital for six months. When we turned 16, Victor had his heart set on a new car. When my father refused to get us one, Victor bashed his brains in with a hammer. As usual, I was the one they blamed, and I was committed to an asylum where I still reside. I didn't even bother trying to explain to them that it was Victor that killed my father, and that it was Victor who had done all the wicked things I had been accused of for my entire life. They wouldn't believe me. To them, Victor didn't exist because he died in the womb and they can't see him. But he's here. He's always with me everywhere I go. And he's just as evil as ever. No one is safe around me because no one is safe around Victor.
Room 66 I'm a pizza delivery man for a local pizzeria. I've encountered a lot of strange things while delivering pizzas over the years, but none of them compare to the encounter I'm about to tell you about. It was a Thursday night. While not being as crazy busy as Friday and Saturday nights, Thursday nights are still quite steady. But this particular Thursday night, things were slow. Very slow. That's why they accepted a delivery that was outside of the normal delivery zone. The location was a hospital, but not just any hospital. It was a mental hospital. Even though it was only 15 minutes outside of our delivery area, I had no idea this place even existed. The building itself was imposing. It was six stories tall, covered in weathered, chipped gray paint. The top of the building was etched with Dutch gables, and the sides of the building were shaped with cylindrical towers with conical rooftops. I felt like I was entering some kind of medieval tower. I expected to have to check in with someone, but the front desk was empty. As a matter of fact, the entire first floor was empty. I didn't see a soul. I even called out, Hello? And my voice echoed down one of the black and white checker floored corridors. Since nobody was responding to me, I decided to move along to the room the pizza was supposed to be delivered to. Room 66. My footsteps echoed through the first floor as I stepped up to the elevator and pressed the call button. I looked up at the old-style elevator floor indicator located above the elevator doors. It was shaped as a half-circle and had the numbers 1 through 6 spread over its arch. An intricately carved dial pointed at the floor number the elevator was currently at. I watched as it slowly descended from the sixth floor. The doors opened with an accompanying ding. I stepped into the elevator and pressed the top floor. The sixth floor. The elevator roared to life with a series of clicks and squeaks before jettisoning me up toward the top of the building. There was no emergency phone by the door panel, and I found myself wondering what I might do if I got stuck in between the floors in this asylum. Lucky for me, that wasn't an issue as a loud ding sound indicated I had arrived at my destination, and the elevator doors sprung open. Finally, I saw some signs of life. The sixth floor was incredibly active. The first thing I noticed was two large employees dressed in white, physically pulling a patient in a straitjacket down the hallway as the patient fought them every inch of the way. There was also an array of nurses scattered about. They all seemed extremely busy. All of the nurses in the nurses' station were preoccupied doing paperwork, filling pill caps, and answering phones and the nurses who were up and about all seemed to be in a hurry. In the distance, I could hear the depressed wailing of multiple patients. Some were moaning in pain or sadness. Some were calling out for help, and others were shouting out violently. I stood at the nurses' station for a few moments. 
I wanted to make sure they were okay with me delivering this pizza to room 66. I must have stood there for five minutes without being acknowledged before I cleared my throat loudly. That didn't work, so finally I called out, Excuse me? One nurse seemed to gaze my way, but then answered a phone and turned her attention elsewhere. Finally, I gave up and decided to just deliver the pizza to room 66. If the employees needed something else from me, they could let me know, but I wasn't waiting around any longer. The room closest to the nurse's station was room 60, so I started down the hallway. The next room was 61, so I knew I was headed in the right direction. The hallway was buzzing. Lots of men dressed in white were rushing up and down the corridor. Nurses were popping in and out of rooms. One weathered old patient was standing in the doorway of room 63. He was staring at me with a cold gaze. He was a tall man with white hair. He was wearing black socks and a short pale blue hospital gown. As I neared him, he whispered, I see you. I hurried past the room. There was another patient in the hallway. She was sitting in a wheelchair. She too was gawking at me. Her eyes were beady and sinister. She was watching my every move intently. I smiled and nodded at her, but she ignored my courtesy and kept watching me. I picked up my pace as I passed by room 64 and 65. Finally, I reached room 66. I stood in the doorway and peered in. At the far end of the room was a hospital bed. Lying in the bed was an ancient old woman. She was skin and bones. Her silver hair was long and greasy. When she spotted me, she flashed a toothless smile. Hello, ma'am. Did you order a pizza? Drool ran from her gummy mouth as she attempted a seductive smirk, and she quickly rose from the bed. I don't want the pizza. I want the pizza delivery boy. She pulled her nightgown down, revealing her leathery, sagging breasts. Pleasure me. Before I could respond, I heard an anguished yell from a man at the far end of the corridor. I turned my head to see one of the men in white rushing toward me. That's room 66! Don't go into room 66! I turned my head back to the old skinny woman. She was now standing up and had dropped her nightgown to the floor, revealing her entire withered naked body. Pleasure me. She began running her hands up and down her wrinkled torso. Sir, sir, get out of there! Get out of room 66! I looked back at the male employee racing toward me, his face drenched with concern. I looked back at the patient in room 66. She was scampering toward me and her arms were now stretched out, reaching for me. Her face was wrinkled into an evil snarl and she screeched out, Pleasure me or die! I dropped the pizza, stumbled backwards and fell onto the floor. I tried to scoot backwards away from the crazed old woman, but she was too fast and launched herself at me. I closed my eyes and I prepared for the impact, but felt nothing. And suddenly, everything fell silent. 
I opened my eyes and was staring into room 66. It was empty. No crazy old naked woman. No bed. Just an empty, decaying room. How could this be? I stood up and dusted myself off. I turned, expecting to see the employee in white who was rushing to my aid. But the hallway was empty. No men in white, no nurses, no patients. Just a dimly lit, empty hallway. The layer of dust on the floor was so thick, I couldn't even make out the pattern of white and black tile. I realized that there was no electricity on. Everything I was able to see was only by the bright moonlight shining in through curtainless windows. I staggered down the hall to the once bustling nurse's station. It too was void of life and was covered in dust and cobwebs. Nobody was there, except for me. At this point I just wanted to get out of this place. I stepped up to the elevator doors, but saw that one of the doors was caved in and lying on the tilted platform of the elevator. But I had taken the elevator up here. What was going on? My skin was crawling in goosebumps as I walked away from the nurse's station and down the hall. I looked into each room I passed. They were all empty, save a few that did have old beds in them. But the beds were covered in filth and mold. In one of the rooms, the ceiling tiles were laying on the floor, soaked in the constant drip coming from the leak of the ceiling. I hurried as fast as I could toward the end of the corridor and found the stairwell door. As I grasped the handle and turned the knob, I heard a loud whisper coming from the other end of the corridor. Pleasure me! My head whipped around and I stared down the corridor. It was empty and silent. At the moment, there was nobody there, but I wasn't going to wait around for that to change. I darted down the pitch-black stairwell, gripping the grimy stair rail the entire way. Finally, I reached the ground floor and bolted out the door and ran to my car. As I started my engine and began to drive away, I looked up one last time at the ominous structure before me and I noticed the dim light illuminating one of the rooms on the sixth floor. I could only assume that it was room 66. The Buzzard I was soaring slightly above the tree line looking for a fresh meal. It was deer hunting season, a favorite time for us buzzards. While some hunters kill a deer and remove the entire animal leaving us birds with nothing, there are plenty who help us to indulge our appetites. Some hunters shoot a deer and clean it right there on the spot leaving the best parts of the carcass laying on the ground for us to devour. 
and some hunters are satisfied enough with the kill and leave the entire deer for us scavengers. Kinda disrespectful if you ask me, but what's that old human saying? Don't look a gift horse in the mouth? As I was flying along keeping my keen eyes open for a fresh kill, I noticed a military cargo truck sputtering along a dirt road through the forest, no doubt headed to that secret base in the hills. The truck was bouncing mightily all over the rough terrain and the driver didn't even notice the large barrel-like container fall out of the back of the truck and roll down a hill deep within the lush forest. I dove down for a closer look. The side of the container said, Top Secret Chemical Division, whatever that means. It was lying on its side and the lid had cracked open during the fall. A bright green liquid was spilling out into the babbling brook. That's when I noticed two hunters stealthily moving through the forest. Their body language told me they were eyeing something of interest in the distance. I perched up high upon a dead tree branch and watched them. If they were about to kill a deer, I might just be in for a hot, fresh dinner. While the deer dinner sounded fine, what I'd really like is for one of those hunters to go nuts and kill the other one. Then I can swoop down and sink my beak into the warm entrails of a human. I've never had human before. My cousin had it once and told me it was delicious. I watched on as the two hunters crouched down and raised their weapons. It was then that I saw what they were aiming at. A gigantic buck was stooping down to drink out of the brook. It stared out defiantly when one of the hunters fired off a shot. I thought for sure the idiot missed and ruined my dinner plans, but apparently I was mistaken for the big buck started staggering around. I had my talons crossed that they'd clean the big beast on the spot and leave my favorite scraps strewn across the forest floor. I flew down and landed on the branch of a smaller tree that was closer to the action and waited patiently. Wildlife The Buck I'm what people refer to as a 16-point buck. I'm big, I'm powerful, the doe love me, but I'm just not enjoying it anymore. I can't speak for other animal species, but deer depression is a real thing and I'm experiencing it. I'm six years old. Most hunters would consider that really old, and they're correct. Most of my kind are dead before they reach the age of three and a half, mostly due to hunters and motor vehicle accidents. I've been doing this long enough where I know how to properly elude hunters. It's not so tough once you get the hang of it. Humans aren't as smart as they think. I've lived a good, fruitful life. Most of the deer running around these parts are descended from me. I've won every fight against young bucks that I've ever had, quite easily, I might add. And I'm the best Scarbly player in the history of deer. If you don't know what Scarbly is, it's a game us deer play. I won't go into details, but just take my word for it. I'm the best there's ever been. 
Now I'm on the decline. I can feel my bones starting to ache. My muscles are at the early stage of softening. And this huge rack of mine is a literal pain in the neck. I'm ready to move on. Suicide for deer is rather easy. You just have to wait until deer season and park yourself in front of some fat-assed hunter. And that's exactly what I planned on doing this crisp autumn day. I had been searching for days for hunters to end my illustrious life. Finally, I found two pathetic ones who were not deserving of my rack, but pickings were slim, so what the hell. I walked up to the babbling brook and waited for them. They sure were taking their sweet time. While I waited, I noticed some bright green substance flowing through the water. I could smell it. It was sweet. I figured since I was about to die anyhow, I may as well give it a taste. It was fantastic. I gulped down as much as my stomach could hold. By then, I could hear the hunters stomping toward me. Don't get me wrong, they were trying to be stealthy, but trust me, they were stomping. I watched on as the two hunters crouched down and took aim at me. It was the fatter of the two who pulled the trigger and missed. I couldn't believe it. Stupid son of a bitch missed. At this range? Seriously? What do I have to do? Go knock the rifle out of their hands, place the barrel in my mouth, and direct them as to how to pull the trigger? Idiots. I decided to walk closer to them to give them a better shot at me, but I realized my legs were suddenly very wobbly and I was staggering all over the place. I suddenly felt frigidly cold as though ice water were running through my veins. The cold sensation was accompanied by piercing blasts of unbearable pain. I looked up to see those two sloppy hunters clomping toward me, and it was then that I realized that they were the remedy for my pain. I knew that if I could swallow down their hot steaming insides, my agony would subside. I lowered my head and charged. Wildlife. The humans. I needed my damn head examined for bringing my moronic chubby brother-in-law hunting with me. This guy had no clue what he was doing. He scared off every buck we had seen thus far. What did my sister see in this jackass? Look. I know I'm not the best hunter in the world. I'm slightly below average at best, but compared to this boob, I'm a master. When I spotted the 16-point buck, everything went silent for a moment. I felt like I was having some kind of vision. And the buck was staring at me. I swear to God, he was staring at me. And then he kind of turned his head away quickly as though I busted him looking at me. But that couldn't be the case. I mean, if this big, mature buck really saw me, he'd have darted away. But there he was, standing by the babbling brook. This was amazing and perfect. Almost too perfect. It was kind of like he wanted us to kill him. I watched on as the big buck took a massive drink from the nearby babbling brook. This was our chance. 
I directed my idiot brother-in-law to crouch down and we took aim together. I was about to whisper to him to wait for my command, but the moron got antsy and fired off a shot. And missed. How the hell did he miss from this range? For a second, I thought maybe I should do my sister a favor by turning the gun on this brain-dead jerk and calling it a hunting accident. In the long run, she'd be much better off. To my surprise, the big buck started staggering around. Evidently, the clown hit the target, but then made the mistake of standing up and running toward the buck while shouting, I got it, I got it. I ran as fast as I could behind him, but quite honestly, I was out of shape myself and I wasn't making up much ground. By the time my brother-in-law reached the buck, the buck was no longer staggering. He was standing stoically and staring at my brother-in-law with enraged, frosted-over eyes. The big buck then lowered its mammoth rack and let out a hideous roar that I had never heard any creature emit in my life. The colossal beast rushed my dopey brother-in-law and impaled him against a tree. Even though he was an idiot, I instinctively rushed to my brother-in-law's aid. The buck was letting out a series of screeching hollers as it pushed its rack deeper into my brother-in-law's soft flesh. I raced up to the buck screaming, hoping to scare it off, but my aggression only enraged the buck further. It removed its antlers from my brother-in-law's belly and turned its fury toward me. Its eyes were lifeless white. It was frothing at the mouth and continued screeching as it lunged toward me and bit a huge chunk of flesh from my arm. As I fell back onto the forest floor and looked up at the deranged beast, I realized what I was dealing with. This was some kind of damned zombie buck. It was at that point that my world went black and the bite of my arm felt like fire. It then quickly turned to an icy feeling and shot through my veins. The icy cold was accompanied with indescribable pain. When I opened my eyes, I saw the buck munching on my dead brother-in-law's throat, which I have to admit looked pretty appetizing. I don't know why, but somehow I knew that if I joined the buck in the meal, my horrendous pain would subside. So that's what I did. The mighty old buck and I feasted on my brother-in-law as we let out a series of delightful sighs of relief from our pain. When we heard the loud, distinct sound of wings flapping nearby, the buck and I turned our heads to see a hefty buzzard sinking its beak into the entrails of my brother-in-law. The buzzard didn't appear to be zombified like me and the buck. I guess he just couldn't resist the chance to feast on a human. The buck and I shrugged and allowed Mr. Buzzard to join us. There was plenty of food to go around. We hope you enjoyed the show. We're dying for you to come back for more. <laughs> Visit ManiacOnTheLoose.com Sign up for our newsletter and I'll give you some free stuff. We'll see you soon. 
very soon. If you want to support the show and you shop on Amazon, instead of getting there by going to Amazon.com, go to ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash Amazon. By doing this, you're still going to Amazon.com. Everything is the same, including the prices. Nothing is different except Amazon gives me a small percentage of the profit instead of keeping it all for themselves. It's a great way to support the show by doing something you were going to do anyway. Get to Amazon by going to ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash Amazon.